Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking in human form, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every, name sh- every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Better? There we go. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much for having me here this morning. It's a blessing to be in God's Word with all of you. This morning, I want to begin by asking, have you ever thought about disunity that is in our world? We see our world fractured and broken, with rivalry and hostility characterizing humanity at large. We see nations at war, the human tendency to factionalism and cliques, with actions too often driven by pride, hatred, or envy, or dehumanizing others to push them down just to be right or to have one's way. You see, the root cause of all this disunity is sin. All of this disunity is simply the fruit of sin that characterizes our unredeemed world at this present time. This ties in with some important context for today's passage from Philippians. And it comes from Philippians 1, 27 to 28, where in contrast to this disunity that we see, we see that God's people, God's church, are to have a unity with one another that is not seen in this world, as this unity preaches the gospel to the watching world. Yet, sinful disunity is still a great danger even amongst the body of Christ. So how are we to fight against it? How do we live in true gospel unity with our Christian brothers and sisters in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? That is the main theme of today's passage in Philippians 2. How do we live in true Christian unity in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Let us read together from verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We begin in verse 1 with four true realities about the Philippian Christians. Four things that the Philippians already have. First, encouragement in Christ, then comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and finally, affection and sympathy. These four things concern the realities of the gospel already working in and among them, of God's love and encouragement in Christ poured out in and amongst them by His Spirit. And notice particularly that third reality, participation in the Spirit, as it is central to what comes next. It concerns the fact of a divinely created fellowship amongst them by the Spirit of God. Paul is saying, this is yours, Philippians. You have a divinely created fellowship with the Son and the Father, which has come to you only by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, uniting you with God and with one another. You are in Christ together, experiencing the reality of God's love amongst you, amongst one another, and woven into a fellowship of which the Holy Spirit is the author and indweller. Look at what you have, Philippians. Likewise, Christian, brother, sister, look at what we have. Every member is knitted and held together by one inseparable bond. As joints and ligaments in a human body, so we are united by the Spirit of Christ under the great head. This unity is a divine reality, a present reality, and nothing in heaven or hell could ever break what God has united to Himself. How glorious. Following participation in the Spirit, Paul mentions affection and sympathy. These are the fruits of regeneration, evidence that God has come and wrenched out one's heart of stone, a heart that loves sin and self, and given a heart that loves God and loves one another with a deep and genuine love from the deepest depths of whom you now are. It's easy to see now how verse 2 flows on. Paul's commands are but the natural outworking of what they already have in divine fellowship with one another. Complete my joy, Paul says, demonstrating his deep and abiding love for the Philippians. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's important to note that whilst God has truly brought them together into glorious divine fellowship with God and one another, Paul still needs to tell them to work it out because of the effects of sin. They need encouragement to physically live out the spiritual reality of gospel unity that is in their lives already because sin and temptation to sin have distracted them from the true gospel unity that is theirs in Christ. Yet, 
how are they to live this out? How are they to do this? Well, by being of the same mind. And later you see in the verse, one mind, which could be translated as mindset or attitude. Verse 2 could be read like this. Complete my joy by being of the same mindset, of one mindset, or of the same attitude, one attitude. Indeed, we all need unity over essential primary gospel doctrine to have any unity at all, which is what we find somewhat in chapter 1, verse 27. You can't strive together in the gospel if there's no gospel truth to strive for. We need essential unity in primary gospel doctrine. Yet Paul is appealing here, not to that essential primary gospel doctrine, but he's requiring something deeper of us to have the same mindset and attitude towards one another. And we will see what this attitude is when we look at the example of Christ in verse 5 later on. Not only that, but they're to have the same love. And this doesn't necessarily mean love the same kind of thing, but possess the same kind of love. The love that they have is to be of the same kind. And likewise, we're going to see what kind of love that is when we reach Christ's example in verse 5. And further, Paul says, be in full accord, which literally means one-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, one-souled. They are already united together in this fellowship but they're called to live out this deep gospel unity with their entire being and in full harmony and agreement. So Paul is calling them to unison in mind, love and will, their entire beings. Paul is calling them to live in perfect unity with one another. Still, what is this mindset and attitude? What then is this same love that they're to have for one another? What does it mean for them to be one-souled with one another? To answer these questions, let's press on to verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now we begin to see what the substance of this true Christian unity is true humility. Starting with the negative command, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is what we've already seen earlier in chapter 1. There are some that are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, envy, and rivalry. They're preaching Christ for personal gain, for themselves, not for Christ, not to build one another up. They aren't they're even against Paul. They, they want him to suffer more, whether emotionally or physically, we don't know. They just do not love him at all, and rather they want to treat him as an enemy, even though they're preaching the same gospel message. They're trying to make a name for themselves in ministry and gather a following rather than serve the Lord God in sincerity. Paul rebukes this. The next word after selfish ambition is the word conceit, which literally means empty glory. What is empty glory? Quite simply, 
seeking after things that seem glorious to the human heart, but inside are dull and empty. Even more simply, empty glory is seeking glory from anywhere but God. It could be the praise of man, the pride of a successful career, or of many possessions, anything. A beloved Puritan author, who is a Christian back in the 17th century, named Thomas Boston, wrote these words in his book, The Art of Man Fishing, which I highly recommend. He says, Consider that the applause of the world is worth nothing. It is hard to be gotten, and when it is got, what have you? A vain, empty puff of wind. They think much of you. You think much of yourself. And in the meantime, God thinks nothing of you. Is this not what empty glory is? And is this not what the envious preachers were pursuing in chapter 1? Pursuing a meaningless, empty puff of wind. In comparison to the glories of heaven, the pursuits of self and of the world apart from God are but a puff of wind. Paul says, don't do anything from a heart seeking empty glory. Instead, we find the way to true glory is through true humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Let's now look more at this true humility. Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's not by pretending that others are actually more important. Thus harboring selfish ambition and conceit in your heart. It's by actually believing that others are more important. But how do I genuinely believe that others are more important? Well, in many ways, it starts with a right view of yourself and a right view of God. But primarily, it is about your mindset being the mindset of Christ, which we will explore in a moment. And what does Paul mean when he says, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others? Well, that includes a number of things we find in Scripture, including rejoicing with those who rejoice weeping with those who weep, pursuing things which make for peace, building one another up in love, seeking not to stumble a brother or sister, seeking to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and bearing one another's burdens. These are some of the many ways that we can look to the interests of others. Once God's people live in such a way counting one another above themselves, there is a oneness, a unity that transcends all earthly unities, as this is the unity that God has created and intended for His people. Now, Paul moves on to the ultimate example of true humility. All that he's said so far is to be motivated by the perfect example of Jesus Christ. There could be no motivation more perfect than to imitate and glorify Christ our God, thus living a life worthy of the gospel. Let's look at verse 5 together. Have this in mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul exhorts the Philippians to have the mindset of Christ, to take upon themselves the attitude which Christ displayed in his incarnation and death. In exhorting the Philippians to this, he also shows them that this is the way to true glory and not empty glory. Now, we'll go deeper and draw out what is before us, but a passage such as this is impossible to be preached worthily. We will be awe in awe of all the truth and mystery contained in this passage for eternity. First, we must see that the eternal becomes incarnate. The eternal becomes incarnate. We begin with Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. This word form means that Jesus didn't just appear as God, but that in his nature, in his essence, Jesus is God himself. The maker of the universe, infinite in power and majesty and glory, all of heaven, the sea, the stars, the moon, the mountains, declaring his praises day and night. Jesus was and is the highest of all, above all created things, God himself. Yet we see next, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does this mean? It means that Jesus had an infinitely blessed and incomprehensible position. His were the rights to be worshipped as God, as the creator of the universe. He could have exercised those rights at any and every moment. Yet he didn't reach out and take hold of those rights, that glory which was and is his. But he humbled himself to become a creature, a man, This is what the word incarnation means, that God becomes man. This is where we reach verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Emptied himself. What does that mean? Could it mean that Jesus emptied himself of his godness, of his divinity? Did Jesus cease becoming God? so that he could become man. By no means. Jesus, even in his humanity, remains fully and completely God, yet he takes on flesh. He doesn't empty himself of his divinity. He adds to himself humanity. Saying emptied himself is simply another way to say he humbled himself. In this way, whilst remaining infinite, immortal, unchangeable, invisible, the infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The one without constraints became constrained to humanity. The unchangeable became changeable. 
the invisible became visible. If this were not found in Scripture, one would consider it blasphemous. See how far Jesus humbled himself. God became man. Second, let's turn to verse 8 and see that the incarnate becomes a curse. Further than just humbling himself from God to man, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus perfectly submitted himself in his humanity to the will of God the Father, and ultimately his perfect obedience led to his horrendous death. This was the Father's will, and this was why Jesus came. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, shed more light on this. I'm going to read from verse 22 to the middle of verse 23. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. A hanged man is cursed by God. And note that the Jews of Jesus' day saw crucifixion as a form of hanging. Thus, Jesus didn't just die any death. He died the most shameful and lowest of deaths one could possibly die, being cursed by God. This curse meant being outside of God's covenant, banned from His people and His blessing, and suffering under the wrath of God as though He were a covenant breaker. Cursed. The full wrath of God and curse of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross. God became man to take the curse upon himself. Such was his suffering on the cross that we see in Psalm 22, 6, that Jesus felt on that cross more worm than man. Yet Jesus bore the curse for believers, to bring them to God and to glory. Such was Jesus' humility, that the highest of all became the lowest of all. The King of glory stooped so low that he ended under the curse of God. As Spurgeon said, he who was once honored with the hallelujahs of ages is now spit upon and despised. Oh, for the words to picture the humiliation of Christ. What leagues of distance between him that sit upon the throne and him that died upon the cross. Well, who can tell the mighty chasm between the highest heights of glory and the cross of deepest woe? Why did Jesus do all this? Because his sights were set on the Father's glory and upon you, to die for you. Christ, the most significant one, the author of life, counted you more significant than himself, looking not to his own interests, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but looking to the interest of others, to the interest of his bride, his church, his people, and ultimately his father. He did this so you might live. He suffered the infinite curse of God upon that cross so that you can enjoy infinite delight in him forever. Jesus didn't do it for the glory of men, not in selfish ambition or for empty glory. He didn't do it to get glory from Satan who tempted him in the wilderness with the world. If only he would bow down. Jesus did not have his heart set on empty glory, but on his Father's glory. Jesus did not have his heart set upon selfish ambition, but upon his bride. Look to verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself from the highest of heights and became the lowest of low. And in response, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is this name? You might ask. Well, before we see it, let's look at Isaiah 45, verses 22 to 23, which Paul is alluding to. I'll read from verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. God has sworn, to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And now God has exalted Jesus in his humanity to this very place. He bestowed upon him the name which there is no higher. Jesus is to be worshipped as Lord, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is Yahweh, the ultimate sovereign authority, the object of universal worship. All angels, humans, demons, all will bow to him as God. If not now, then when he returns. His glory being so great that no one shall be able to stand before him. So we see Jesus who humbled himself below all is now given a position above all. And note that verse 9 starts with the word, therefore. This means that in some unfathomable way, God did this in response to Jesus' work in his humanity, in response to his self-humiliation. In doing so, Jesus ultimately proves once and for all that the way up is the way down. The way to true glory is the way of deep humility. And that too is the way for us. 
Don't forget that Paul is telling us all of this because he wants us to see that true unity is absolute, Christ-like, selfless humility. Absolute, self-denying, God-glorifying, Christ-like regarding and serving of others over yourself. This is how the church is to be of one mind, by having the mind of Christ. This is how the church is to be of the same love, by having the love of Christ. This is how the church is to be one souled, by deeply and genuinely counting others above themselves, just as Christ did. This is how the church is to live in true unity, by true Christ-like humility. So I must end by asking you, do you do all of your Christian service and indeed live all of your Christian life with Christ's own heart and mindset? Or are you living your life for selfish ambition and empty glory? Are you looking to the interests of others to build our brothers and sisters up in the Lord, to bear their burdens, to strengthen them in Christ? How are we living this out? Do we pray for one another? Do we serve one another practically? Lift one another up? Note that in verse 5, Paul said, this mindset is ours in Christ Jesus, meaning that we can live like this because Christ has worked in us and makes this available to us by His Spirit. He helps us. He enables us to live like Christ and to have His mindset. Once we live like this, we will see that true Christian unity flows out of living in Christ-like humility. This is how we can live in true gospel unity and battle our sin that so seeks to corrupt and divide. Yet take courage, believer. Though we desire this perfect unity, we will never see it as Christ's church here on earth. That perfect unity will only come when our Lord Jesus returns and unites all things in heaven and on earth to himself, removing sin forever. How we should long for that day. Finally, have you submitted to this glorious Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus, the infinite God who humbled himself and took on flesh to die in the place of all who trust in him? Jesus is the only one who can save you from sin and bring you into true fellowship with Him and with His people. If you haven't trusted in Him and you would like to know more about that, please talk to me afterward or anyone that you've seen up the front today. Would you pray with me? O great and merciful God, we praise You that You set Your sights upon Your bride and we praise you, Jesus, that you set your sights upon your Father's glory. Lord, we praise you for your work upon that cross in becoming human, in dying in our place and bearing the curse that we so deserve. Lord, would you help us to delight in your blessings and in your glory, in who you are and in what you've done. And we ask that you would help us to walk in true Christ-like humility following the way that you have paved for us. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.